64. For the Stratford Historical Society. Mr. J. Fletcher Lewis, Stratford Harbor Master, Mr. Edwin Washburn, and Lewis Knapp are going to discuss early days on the Housatonic River and their recollections of the river as it used to be. Gentlemen, some of the things that we're interested in are the history of commerce on the Housatonic, any industry such as fishing and oystering that occurred, uh, the docks, boatyards, breakwaters, and uh, other uh, buildings and establishments that uh, have been along the river, which may or may not be there today, uh, natural events and uh, changes that have occurred in the Housatonic in your history, and your knowledge of uh, people and your own experiences on the Housatonic. We can discuss these things in uh, any order that you uh, think of them. And, uh, perhaps we should uh, start by uh, discussion of the uh, breakwater, the history of the breakwater. The breakwater at uh, Wofford Pine? Yes, sir. <clears throat> well, gentlemen, that uh, breakwater, the permit for that breakwater was approved in 1871. The construction of the breakwater was started in 1890 and was not completed until 1914. The material for the breakwater was uh, transported from the Derby at the head of the navigable river in a vessel named Commodore Jones. This vessel was uh, originally constructed in Derby for the purpose of uh, freighting brick from Fishkill on the Hudson to the Battery in New York. She served many years on the Hudson and uh, eventually returned to Stratford. Her uh, bones rest in Ferry Creek. This uh, this vessel was eventually converted to a barge and was towed by a tug called the Evona. Uh, these rocks which constructed this breakwater were uh, transported from Derby to the breakwater on this converted sloop. The contractor who constructed the breakwater was Thomas Anderson. Do you know anything of the history of the lighthouse at Stratford Point? The original lighthouse at Stratford Point was, uh, history tells us, was a an iron basket with a, a flaming wood fire. And that has come down through the ages so that at the present time we have a light in a conical tower of 300,000 horsepower or candle power and it's the third it was the third light constructed on the sound and is one of the leading lights in candle power has, has there always been a keeper living there? There has always been a keeper, and uh, there are descendants of the original keeper uh, still living in the town of Stratford. And what was his name? Do you remember? I want to get it. Oh, okay. Is there a some more of the lighthouse. Uh, you want to cut it in with the other? Sure, sure. go right uh, As I said before, the first record we have was a 
fire on the beach. In 1821, the first lighthouse was built. It was the third lighthouse on Long Island Sound. The original light burned whale oil and then lard oil was used. The lens came from France and was very expensive. It was a revolving white light with a 30-second flash and was known as a fifth-class light. In 1881, a new building and tower was erected using the same lens. The fuel was changed to kerosene. It is 54 feet above high water. The fog bell on the early light was replaced in 1911 by a Typhon horn. Descendants of the original keeper's family, the Buddingtons, are still active and boating on the river. Uh -huh. oh, yeah. that, uh, that colors the light. Then the, then the uh, uh, Judsons, then the Judsons followed he, after that. Then, he, was, he was uh, in between there somewhere. The, the, uh, the people who are descendants that live here today are the Hydes. Oh. Live on the foot of Stratford Avenue. They're descendants of the Buddingtons. Well, then the, the famous uh, Stiles Judson, uh, known politically all over the country, I guess, isn't he? Wasn't he uh, one of the favorite sons of Stratford? He was probably descendant of that old uh, Judson, the lightkeeper's family. Oh, his, yeah, Judson, yeah. I heard you folks uh, talking about the Poodatuck Boat Club a while ago. Perhaps you'd care to review some of the history of the boat club, uh, the yacht club rather, and uh, how it came into being. Well, I think I started a little while ago. Uh, Fletch can pick me up on it, but the early, the earliest I can remember is the is the uh, Lewis Oyster Company that had this building out on the piles there, which I think is, you say is just south of the present uh, yacht club, uh, Fletch. Did you? Just south of it, was it? Well, that was the second one. Just south. Lewis, Lewis yeah. Oyster House. Yeah. yeah. And. Uh, and you say that the uh, the uh, Puttuck Yacht Club gradually uh, uh, moved into that that old uh, oyster house before they built the new one. Is that right? That's true. That's true. Then that must have been where Flad and Kale is now. Flad and Kale now occupies that. location. Oh, and, uh, you were talking about the different parts of the river out here that I never heard of. What oh. were you saying and where are they? Oh, the, uh, the bars and the river? Yeah. Will we go through with the uh, yacht club now? Uh, <laughs> oh, we'll talk yeah, about it. I, I think that it was old Teddy Palmer told me once that the name, did, did you cover that before, Fletch? The name of the uh, Poodatuck Yacht Club, what it mean? meant, Poodatuck? The word Poodatuck? Yeah, placed by the <coughs> fast water. It was a, an Indian name uh, referred to a tribe of Indians uh, who uh, had their headquarters where the uh, town of Shelton now is. The, uh, the name means uh, moving waters or uh, waters near the mountains. Well, that's a little different from what Ted Palmer gave me. <laughs> I don't know where he got his information, but uh, anyway, it's interesting to uh, mm -hmm. hear how these names come out. Yeah. Well, you were, you were just asking about the bars and the river, and this is uh, something else that Ted Palmer told me about. and. Uh, the farthest up the river, up above the railroad bridge, was known as Culver's Bar. And uh, then as you move down and uh, opposite to Broad Creek, which is right where the little beacon light, do you remember the beacon light that was out there, don't you? On that uh, 
massive piece of concrete out there. There was a oh yes, a I guess in 1938 that came down, didn't it? Well, they they took During it away. The war. I think uh, I think they said that it began to settle on one side and they took it away. But Fletcher, the uh, beacon, the beacon out here that's gone. When did that go? <coughs> it was taken away. Uh, <coughs> After 1940, it was still there when we built the house. Mm -hmm. Well, by means of identification, uh, that was known as Old Centennial Bar. And as you went down the river, well, I would say it was about opposite uh, uh, the, uh, the boat uh, launching ramp there, was known as Poverty Bar. And then the flats out near the breakwater was known as Money Making Bar. Now, uh, the only the only interest that I have in them that I know them all because I run on them with my boat. <laughs> I haven't missed one. <laughs> um, How did you say the money making bar probably got its name? Well, I don't know, Janie. Someone here suggested that somebody they made money by towing the other boats off. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Lewis, you were saying the channel was on the other side of Nell's Island at one time, but well, that, that was uh, before your time? That's merely hearsay. I uh -huh. have no proof of it. I, it it wouldn't seem so, because I, I uh, sort of pictured this river as a natural, graceful river that, uh, that came down through here and deposited Nell's Island over there with these marshes, with the uh, creeks going through the marshes. Because it, I can't quite imagine that such an enormous flow of water could have been changed, Fletch. Unless, unless the uh, marshy area west of Broad Creek has built up since the channel went down through there. Well, just the natural flow of water with the tendency to always sweep toward the outside. Outside of the bend. Of the bend. And that certainly couldn't fit that case over it there. It doesn't either. seem as if it would. That's true. Well, thinking more, uh, going back perhaps to the uh, uh, associated with the uh, yacht club down here and uh, the early days of fishing, I remember um, when I was a boy living in the east side in Bridgeport, that about this time of the year, they, um, you'd hear the peddlers, the fish peddlers coming around and um, with their, a load of Stratford shad, Stratford River shad. And of course everybody in the neighborhood was, uh, would go out for these Stratford River shad. And uh, of course that's all gone by this time. Another. Uh, Another uh, item that was told me by one of the old residents here that when his, in his boyhood days, they used to row an oyster dredge across the river with a rope attached to it. And uh, with a horse on Broad Street, would uh, walk up Broad Street and tow this, pull this dredge across the river. And when it was pulled out on this side, it'd be, they'd have a half of an oyster dredge full of oysters. And it's just one of those interesting little things that have been handed down, and I have no doubt but what uh, that old Jim McTaggart was telling me the truth about it, you know. He knew many facts about the river. Did, uh, when you uh, speak of the uh, shad being sold, did you, have you any re recollection of what they sold for, how much? Oh, I, I should think, uh, I, somehow or other, five cents a pound comes back to me. Well, the record, five cents for the whole fish, I don't remember. The record that I have states that uh, they sold for fourpence or sixpence per fish. Oh, well, that's before my day. day but that was, that was How old do you think I am, anyway? Pants, <laughs> huh? That was back when uh, they had the argument about about building the Washington Bridge because it interfered with the shad fishing. <laughs> <laughs> that was back in uh, the 1820s. You don't go back that far? No, not not oh. quite. No, I don't know whether they call that an insult or not. <laughs> well, going up the, the river just a little bit, uh, 
Uh, do you remember the uh, the old um, um, uh, uh, the old shore house up here? Uh, Miner Smith. Miner Smith Shore House. Yeah. I've eaten there. Where was that? Well, if you remember, you go down uh, Minor Avenue until you hit uh, Housatonic Avenue, which continues straight on into the private road there, and uh, it's, uh, you know who lives there. The Tuttle there. House? What? The Tuttle House. That's Tuttle House, that's right, yeah. yeah. Oh. But that was known as, as, uh, as oh. Miner Smith's uh, Shore House, and that's it right. was noted for its famous Shore Dinners. Could you go there by boat? Or I well, I, sp the, I suppose they had a little dock out they there. They had a little dock out there. But my earliest uh, recollections of uh, eating up at uh, Miner Smith's and coming down this street here on a motorcycle, that's a good many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and this was just, uh, just a dirt road. It was just as it is now. The street lines, I think, were just as it is now, except that it was just a dirt road. and. Uh, and uh, but they did have all of the little trees planted out. Whoever put them out, I don't know whether Lewis did that or not. Well, but he all of these, all these maple property. trees that you are now uh, were, were all lined on that street. Mm -hmm. Speaking of uh, the old Smith Shore House, I can recall going to dinner there with my father, and uh, in the. Uh, in the middle of the dinner, <coughs> Miner Smith came in, in his bare feet, and his undershirt, rubbing his hands together and inquiring how the dinner was. <laughs> <laughs> he probably was just out digging clams somewhere, was he? Um, do you remember, um, you have some record of the steamboats that, uh, on the river yeah, here that... I got uh, them all. Uh, do you think that would you be You want to put that in now? Well, let's see. They ran, they ran to New York, didn't they, Fletch? Yes. Uh, that, that goes back to, uh, to show you how big a place Derby was. Derby was really something. Well, what were these steamboats? Passengers? Or, and uh, freight. <coughs> Mostly freight, some passengers. Uh, I've got the... Uh, I started uh, 1845 and stayed at... Uh, in 1845, large steamboats were using the river extensively, and uh, this, this refers to the drawbridge. A wider draw was needed to get the boats through the bridge. And uh, Then they would start at Derby, or that yeah. would be a terminal point? Yes. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the boats using the river were... Uh, that is a steamboat. Steamer, of which we have a record, was called the Ansonia. And uh, the record shows that she was built in 1848. She was the first steamer to make regular trips between Derby and New York on what was known as the Derby-New York Line. She was later known as the Robert A. Snyder and ran on the Hudson River. She was commanded by Captain Demring. Norwalk, Captain Peck, 1849, ran on the Derby route in 1854, she became the Aurora and was last known as the Oriental on Providence River. Then came the Monitor, which was the victim of a bridge accident. It might be well to, to note that at this time, it seems that uh, the uh, bridges which were constructed in the same location where uh, the Washington Bridge is now. 
uh, up until uh, the time that they built the present bridge were more or less sketchy in construction. And uh, this bridge to which I refer fell on the steamer monitor as she went through the draw. Uh, there wasn't anybody hurt except a couple of sidewalk superintendents that were watching the bridge, watching the boat go through the bridge. <laughs> but the uh, annoying part of it was uh, after the they got the vessel through the bridge, the draw of the bridge lay in the river for four years before it was removed and, and the steamer passage was resumed. <coughs> uh, after the monitor came the Nogada. And uh, in making the research for this story, I uh, was given a newspaper by uh, a woman in uh, Bridgeport which had a paid advertisement in the uh, classified section of the newspaper which stated that uh, in 1845, March of 1845, the uh, new propeller Nogative was to uh, on the Derby New York run. Well, if, the, uh, if she started on the Derby New York run in 1845, and the steamboat records tell us that the first steamer to make that run was the Ansonia in 1848, somebody's mixed up. <laughs> but, uh, However, these, uh, this, by the way, this Nogada, now I haven't any, I haven't any records to, uh, to bear me out on this, but this Nogada was apparently one of the later boats, and, and look, I, uh, I was able to obtain a architect's sketch of that boat, and she looked quite modern, and, uh, I uh, traced her history as much as I could, and I think that this Nogada is the boat that was sold to the U.S. government and converted to a gunboat and was the one that was in the battle between the Monitor and Nogada, or uh, Monitor and uh, Merrimack. Merrimack. And that's the last we ever heard of her. Mm -hmm. Never heard of the Nogadic afterward. Every one of these uh, steamships must have been rather shoal draft. Uh, they had to be the shoal draft. When I found out, uh, we made a we made a small model from this uh, architect sketch of this Nogadic, and of course the architect sketch showed the vessel afloat. In other words, you only saw the vessel from the water line up. You didn't know what the underbody was. So uh, we naturally, in cutting the model, put in a single screw. And uh, we were very happy with the thing until Captain Bob Culver came along. And uh, I was very proud of it, and I wanted him to praise it. He took one look at it. He says, "You made one glaring error there." I said, "What was that, Captain Bob?" Well, he said she was twin screw. She wasn't a single screw. Mm -hmm. So that bears out what uh, Mr. Knapp here says about the draft. Evidently, those boats were all very short draft. Well, Although I will say this, we had water up the river in those days. We had water here. We had 10 feet of water anywhere at low water in uh, 1935. Was any part of the uh, channel dredged? Was any part of the channel dredged, Fletch? Well, it was dredged. Uh, it, that it was it was dredged uh, about 10 years ago, oh, yeah. wasn't it, Fletch? Yeah, it was dredged. Uh, the channel was dredged to a depth of uh, 18 feet. 
1955. It was dredged to a depth from the mouth to Culver's Bar, to a depth of 18 feet. Was it ever dredged before that? Only uh, in certain areas, not completely. Well, I think you mentioned about the uh, mentioned the shallow draft. I think the Ansonia was a side wheeler, wasn't side it? Side wheeler. The earlier boats were side wheelers. <coughs> I think several of those boats. I think the Monitor was a side wheeler. Mm -hmm. Do you know whether any of these made a stop in Stratford on their way from Derby to New York? Oh yes, yes. That uh, that paid advertisement, which I referred to a while ago, stated that uh, the vessel would leave Derby, stop in Milford, stop in Stratford, and then go directly to New York, but there would be a stage furnished for the convenience of passengers from uh, Stratford to Bridgeport, mm -hmm. also on the return. Where would the uh, stop have been in Stratford? Uh, as near as we can find out, down in the area of Max Harbor, there must have been another uh, dock in there which seems to have disappeared entirely. We couldn't trace it to Bond's dock. We thought possibly it was Bond's dock, but uh, the records don't bear us out on that. While you've uh, mentioned Bond's dock, perhaps you'd tell us uh, what you remember of the history of uh, Bond's dock. How long has our, uh, will our reels run? Uh, yeah, well, if you want to hear the history of Bond's Dock, I think you need a big reel, won't you, Fletch? <laughs> well, I, I don't think I've got too much in here about it. <clears throat> in the old days, we find two docks mentioned as located on the river. They were known as the Upper Dock and the Lower Dock. We know the Upper Dock as the Coal Dock or Bedell Shipyard, and the lower dock as Bond's dock. <coughs> the upper dock was originally the site of a phosphate manufacturing plant. This material was shipped from this dock to various points on the Sound and adjacent waters. Later the dock was used by the J.H. Burge Coal Company of Shelton, Milford, and Stratford. It was last used as the coal dock by the Hall <coughs> Coal Company of Stratford. It was finally purchased by the Bedell Shipyard and is now part of their docking system. The phosphate plant was originally located on this dock and was operated by Mr. Parks, who lives in the old house at East Broadway and Elm Street. Oh, That's oh, where yeah. Carl Oxner sure. lives. Sure, Carl Oxner, yeah. From this dock, the steam canaler Iris ran to Derby. In, eight, in the 1800s, the lower dock, or Bonds dock, was the scene of much boat building. Moses Hart made a specialty of building oyster steamers at this location. Some of the better known of these boats were the Bond Courier, mm -hmm. Kate Stevens, and the Mikado. Ashbel Bond, owner of the Bond Courier, married Mr. Courier's daughter, and Mr. Courier furnished the money to build the Bon Courier. She's now known as the Louis R., known by the Raydell Oyster Company. I remember her. I do. This boat is now known as the Louis R. Uh, I just repeated that. Uh, Mr. Courier at one time operated the little grocery store at the foot of Stafford Avenue. You remember that grocery sure. store down there? And the Lockwood... Uh Lockwood Avenue hits in there. Yeah. In 1889, John Bond took over the lower dock and established a training quarters for pugilists. Many of the best-known prize fighters of that period were trained here. The most celebrated were Terry McGovern and Tommy Ryan. Our well-known late citizen, Shang Wheeler, served as sparring partner at the club. This dock is now used as a public dock by the town of Stratford. Do you remember the training camp, Mr. Washburn? What? 
you uh, remember the training? Oh, I remember, but I, I never had uh, any direct contact with it, just oh, no. knowing that uh, they might have been looking for sparring partners, and I didn't want to be one. We <laughs> <coughs> Shang, it seems that Shang had a girl. Tommy had his eye on Shang's girl. Right? Well, this Tommy Ryan was a uh, was a heavyweight. Wasn't oh yeah, he was, uh, yeah. So was Shang. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so uh, I can remember this <clears throat> going down there as a small kid, and uh, <clears throat> old John fanning us out of there. He he wouldn't let us in there. <clears throat> so. Uh, Old John had a, a stunt that he pulled with the fighters down there. It was two for John and one for the fighters. Uh, and he had a big wood pile up alongside of the old building. And uh, there, there were two axes, as I remember, standing alongside of the door on the south side of the quarters. And he'd send these strappers out there and chopped uh, on this wood pile, split wood, to heat, heat the quarters. So one day, after Tommy had been successful in stealing Shang's girl, Shang came down Stratford Avenue and saw Tommy outside of the training quarters working on the wood pile. Shang made a wild dive for the other axe alongside the door and started for Tommy. Tommy threw down his axe and started for the dock. Dove off the dock. <laughs> Shang marched up and down the dock with the axe over his shoulder and says, you so and so, you'll come ashore and I'll cut your head off. Well, they finally had a cop collar Shang and then somebody dove overboard and saved Tommy from drowning. <laughs> well, what became of the girl? That's what we were in. I don't know about that. I tell you, in those days I wasn't interested. <laughs> <laughs> but you mentioned your dad a little while ago. Uh, uh, um, old Captain Bill Lewis, as he was known as. Was he active around the river here very much or was he more Not in Bridgeport? Not so much here in the river as he was in Bridgeport. More over in Bridgeport. In the oyster business over there, oyster wasn't business. it? Natural bed, natural grocery. Oh, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that, uh, that uh, did he uh, have anything to do with that idle hour on the sound over on Long Beach over there, the little shack? The no, I remember that shack very well. No, uh, uh, I'm talking about the, uh, the natural growth oyster sloops. Uh, I made a list here of of those which uh, had uh, Stafford as a hail fort. There were uh, uh, just 12 of them uh, noted in the uh, in the uh, report of the Shellfish Commission, 1896. <clears throat> Twelve of those sloops hailed from Stratford, and then there were four oyster steamers recorded in this same report as hailing from Stratford. That's a very interesting well, thing. The, I'd like uh, to have you look at that. The, the natural beds, uh, Fletch, if I remember correctly, uh, only uh, boats under sail were permitted on those natural beds, weren't they? You, you had to propel your boat by sail. You couldn't have an engine in the boat unless you removed the propeller wheel before you went to work on the bed. Mm -hmm. And all the dredges had to be hauled by hand. That is, you had to haul the line through your hand. You couldn't use winders or winches or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, during the latter part of the, when the bed was active, uh, they used winders and used power. You remember uh, the uh, maps or charts that uh, 
showed all of the oyster all the beds, beds. Yeah, they're all in there. Is there? Yeah. They're all laid out like city squares, and uh, and this these these the beds belong to H. J. Lewis, and and these belong to uh, Radel, and then they put the uh, the uh, public beds uh, owned by the state, and uh, it's it's almost like a city of, of a chart or a map of a city. The edges were marked by mm -hmm. poles. Well, those stakes, stakes mm -hmm. are there. Out there uh -huh. That shows a section of it. Oh yes, this book is, is. Uh, the Connecticut Shellfish Commission book of uh, what is the date on that book? 1896. 1896. It's Waldo and uh, and it has. Many of those names uh, you probably remember. This has J. Smith and Sons, Miller and Goodsell, the Stratford Oyster Company. Stratford, Miller and Goodsell, J. Smith and Sons. Here's. H.J. Oh, Lewis, H.J. Lewis, G.H. Oh, Thompson. Oh, H.C. Rowe, he came down from New Haven, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. And uh, there, H.C. Rowe. Peter West, right there by your yeah. thumb. Stratford Oyster Company. And up yeah. by Stratford Point, it says yeah. State Jurisdiction. Across There's H.J. Lewis the right, right here in the middle, see? Yeah. yeah. He had the greatest mm. number of uh, acres of any uh, rower. He had, I think it was 8,000 acres at one time. You see, there are all the natural beds. It's Stratford natural, natural beds were uh, point no point. Stratford point. They were open to anyone. Is that, that right? Under sale, and with the, uh, yeah. I think they had to have a license from the state to uh, to operate there. Yes, they had to take out a license. My father was the known as the uh, state inspector. It was his duty to see that you did have a license and to see that you worked on the bed and not on somebody's private ground. Mm -hmm. Do either of you gentlemen remember the river ever icing up? Yes. Yes, I do. I can't tell you the year. Uh, the last year, I think, was 1934 that we had any great amount. Well, I think well, it was before we had that. some. We had some <coughs> prior to that. Uh, I remember. Uh, I think it must have been before that. I should say it was around 26 or something like that. Is that because the time I it came over the bridge? Yes, and I walked right from my backyard out and sat on that black uh, can buoy out there. Mm -hmm. In fact, I have a picture of uh, some of the kids in the neighborhood and my wife and uh, even the, the dog we had at that time <laughs> was running out there. And I think, uh, I think that uh, at that time, dogs started to chase uh, this deer down down through here. Do you remember that? I do, yeah. Now, whether he got across the river, I don't know. I think he got across, but whether he broke through the ice over near the channel over there. Of course, I don't think it froze solid over to the island. Mm -hmm. That is not enough uh, to support anybody. But it was it was plenty thick. And Johnny Adams, you remember John Adams? The uh, people lived up there. Do you see how's about me? I didn't know. Well, it's the uh, the Lake Submarine Company Adams. Well, John skated from his to his backyard up to Derby on the ice. Mm -hmm. He must have been a pretty strong boy, but <laughs> he did. He skated uh, all the way up the river uh -huh. at that time. So, Ed, you just mentioned the Lake Submarine Company, and I have seen. Uh, marine or evidences of marine railway just above the railroad bridge where yes. Manning Maxwell and Moore is now. Yes. What do you care to tell us about this? Well, that was uh, that was the lake yard, wasn't it? That wasn't the lake. No, that was another. <coughs> was that uh, another concern? They well, built they six, built the uh, six of those steamers up there. Well, they built those uh, well, not the victory ships, but they built those three mounted schooners up there. I think Bedell ran that yard for them up there, didn't he? Bedell uh, <coughs> launched the boats. Uh, do you recall when we had the flood and the dredge upset down at Cornwall? Oh, yes, Park? yes. Do you recall the uh, man... 1955? Yeah. yeah. The man that raised her? <coughs> Stash, is, I think his name was Stash. He brought a a big vessel here to use yes. as yeah. a dead man for, to operate yeah. the cables. Yeah. That was one of those steamers. Oh. 
And in what years would they have been built? Well, that was uh, during the World War One. World War One. That's right. Because mm -hmm. I, in fact, I, I happened to be home on leave, and I went up there to see one of them launched at that time. <coughs> there were about 400 of them built throughout the country. We built six up here. They weren't, uh, whether it was the uh, wood that they used in or not, but they weren't ever very... They never uh, were very successful. Well, there was only one out of the six up here that ever had power put in her, and the rest were converted to barges. Yeah. <coughs> Mr. Lewis, a while ago you mentioned the flood in 55. Was that the worst one you remember? That's no, the worst one I guess we really had here. 38 was the... 38 was the hurricane, mm -hmm. but this was the... Uh, 55 was the actual flood. I don't know whether you want to combine the two or not, but 55 <coughs> was a real flood. 38 I'll, was a hurricane. I'll never forget the 1955 one either. That's the year I was fleet captain for the boat club, and they were doing the dredging. And you and I must have moved those moorings six times during the season. Then the flood came and took them all down the river anyhow. That's right. That's right. That was quite a night that, uh, you see, uh, what caused, uh, well, it was a series of circumstances. The, uh, they were dredging the river, dredging the channel. And they had proceeded from the mouths in as far as Kumbo Point with the dredge. And the dredge was operated by steam and the fuel was oil, <coughs> which required a, an oil barge to supply the fuel. And the afternoon before the flood, the oil barge had been brought alongside the dredge and uh, the oil had been pumped from the barge aboard the dredge. But they, uh, they left the barge made fast to the dredge. There were 60 men aboard the dredge. And when the uh, rush of water came down, the dredge was moored by her spuds. You know what I mean by spuds? No. Yeah. Uh, God. All right. Well, I was wondering whether we, I could get that on the tape. You see. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in case anybody <laughs> didn't know what spuds were. This <laughs> vertical motion means uh, the spuds are, are uh, driven straight down from the Anchored dredge in, into the bottom. Into the bottom, yeah. Well, these spuds held the dredge <coughs> broadside to this tremendous current, and the uh, operators of the dredge knew that uh, they were in a bad fix, so they tried to get the spuds up, but the steam was down. They managed to get one spud up, and that was worse than as if they had left it down, because that left her with one spud down, and one spud up, and the tremendous current rolled her over. There were 60 men aboard of her, and everybody managed to get aboard the oil barge. And then to complicate matters, we had two derelict barges up uh, above the powerhouse, up there uh, above Culver's Bar, uh, moored on the bank of the river. <coughs> Those barges parted their moorings and they came down, one of them came down and it followed my boat about one o'clock in the morning and she went down and fished up on Shark Beach and uh, the oil barge was alongside of her. The dredge was rolled over on her side. The oil which had been pumped in there was coming out and the tanks and covering the river and the boats. We were in real trouble. But uh, we had, uh, the water was, uh, I should say, at least 
five feet more, five feet higher than I ever saw it at the most abnormal high tide. And uh, we got a current of, uh, oh, I should... Five feet. More, five feet higher than I ever saw it at the most abnormal high tide. And uh, we got a current of, uh, oh, I should think at least ten knots, and our normal current is not more than two or two and a half knots. Did that cause more damage than the hurricane? No, I don't think it did. The, uh, the damage caused by the flood was spotty in uh, certain areas. The hurricane was a more general thing. Here in this particular area, I think a southeast storm that we got in 1950, and bear in mind I'm speaking of this particular spot right in here, I think that southeast storm did more damage than the 38 hurricane. Yeah. It took one boat that was moored out abreast of Flatten Caves and finally parted the mooring and she was headed just right for their yard. She went in and right up through the yard. The boats were hauled out, stored for the winter. She went right through the whole fleet and landed up pretty close to Broad Street. And they had debris and sedge, dead sedge grass. And uh, I never saw such a mess in my life. The boats were boats which were hauled out in the yard were nearly buried by the old timber and grass and so forth that had washed in from the river. That storm in 1950 is the one that uh, practically destroyed the Housatonic Boat Club. Right. Everything was swept away except the main building. You know something that I, uh, I've thought about but never said very much about it. You know, we've, uh, we used to put the moorings on the platform the mushrooms, that's the only thing that kept that that platform there with those mushrooms down there. Now they won't let us put them on anymore. <laughs> that's the only part of the club that stayed there. I guess everything else moved, didn't it? That's right. The yeah. uh, main clubhouse had uh, been moved onto New Spiles just the previous year, I think. That's right. And uh, this this fact, plus probably the fact that it was weighted down with these moorings. Uh, we uh, we had probably... Uh, Oh, we must have had uh, ten tons of moorings on there. How long have you been harbor master? Thirteen so, years. Thirteen? Mm -hmm. Thirteen years last month. Gets to be pretty hectic, or more hectic every year, I'd say, with more oh, pleasure boaters on true. the river. The, the duties have changed. Uh, this patrol was established uh, three years, four years ago. Prior to that, uh, we had enough to do, but uh, it was mostly uh, in uh, investigating proposed projects on the waterfront or uh, keeping the channel clear, boats moored in the channel. But uh, three or four years ago when the state came out with this uh, speed restriction and boats in the last five years have increased to such an extent, the number of them, that now it's a, it's a real problem. We don't know exactly what to do with it. been more or less of a controversy too. Nellis Island is not a sanctuary as I understand it. It's a, what would you call it, a motel for birds going south or something like that. <laughs> uh, you can hunt over there, you can shoot birds over there, but uh, Maybe I you can, but I can't. I'm not good enough shot. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Go ahead. What I wanted to do, can you tell me whether Mrs. Stein owns this little island, Goose Island, out here in front of you? I no, don't think so. No. Didn't he buy it from, from Mrs. Burns? I don't. Did Mrs. Burns own it? Yeah, I understood so. <coughs> she, I thought she just owned the strip of land yes, that was in the back of their, their Yes, uh, she owned the strip along the back there. Just along the river. But I didn't think anybody owned that island. All the way up to Homestead. What because, I wanted to do... <coughs> because Molly was worried about uh, when they were putting these stakes out here and everything. She th said that she had heard they were going to remove that island. No, I, I looked into that. And I, I guess I told you about yeah. it in the head. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> what I wanted to do was to make that little island there entirely restricted as far as shooting was concerned. Yeah. It's, it's too close mm -hmm. to the houses anyway. You see, uh, they changed that restriction. It used to be 500 feet. Now I think it's only 250 feet. You can shoot firearms within 250 feet of a dwelling house, which is too close. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to if I could find the ownership of that little island, I think I could fix it so we could get it restricted and keep the people off of there. I chased off two fellas off of there last fall. I know you did. <laughs> yeah. Well, well I'll, I'll inquire well, around. I, if I could find out who owned it, I thought she did, but... Uh, I didn't think Well, if she owned it, it would be in the town records, wouldn't it, Flesh? Seems as if it would. I ran along with the fishing, too those bridges, there was a, a, a lot of controversy over the, the bridge. Of course, first off, we had the ferry. You wouldn't want to put anything that's pretty far back. That's all right. Mm -hmm. You want to put something like that on the ferry? That was the famous Moses Wheeler ferry? That's right. Our first ferry was a scow about 20 feet overall operated by Moses Wheeler. The power was produced by very crude oars. The fare was half penny a person and tuppence for horse or beast. For inhabitants and for other travelers, tuppence per person and fourpence for horse or beast. <laughs> he couldn't get rich on that deal, could he? Well, he might have done in those days, but he wouldn't in 1964. <laughs> <laughs> in 1690, the ferry was leased to Mr. Wheeler's son for 21 years. The Wheeler lease eventually expired, and we find a Richard Backlash as ferryman for 21 years. In October 1733, John Benjamin appears as ferryman, and the fare was increased to a penny and sixpence for horse or beast. There had been, during these years, numerous attempts to establish a ferry on the Milford side, but without success. The earliest mention of the Milford ferry was in 1674. <coughs> Again, we read of it in 1691. This time it was stated that if Mr. Wheeler failed to fulfill his duties, the Milford ferry should be established. Nothing, however, came of the proposition. We again find a reference to the Milford Ferry in 1697, but our record does not show whether it was started or how long it operated. In 1712, we find an agreement between Milford and Richard Blacklash, in which a bond of 20 pounds is mentioned. In 1720, a committee was appointed to rent the ferry for not exceeding seven years. Apparently, this action did not materialize. In 1731, it was voted by the town of Milford to accept a grant from the General Assembly to establish a ferry on the east side of the river known as the Stratford River. In 1758, the matter was again before the General <coughs> Assembly to establish a ferry on the east side of the river. There now appears a record of Josiah Curtis of Stratford as ferryman. A town meeting was called in Stratford to consider the establishment of the Milford Ferry. There was much opposition. 
representatives of Stratford together with Ferryman Curtis having appeared before the General Assembly, it was then resolved to grant Milford the, the liberty and privilege of keeping a boat on the east side upon their erecting a dwelling house at or near the ferry. Mr. Curtis at this time complained about ferrying soldiers across the river without pay. He asked to be reimbursed and was granted a small amount. In 1761, Peter Hepburn was operating the Milford Ferry, and he claimed that he had been forgotten by the Milford authorities and requested that he be allowed to keep a public house of entertainment. His request was granted. The Milford Ferry continued to operate until 1798, at which time the town voted to sell the property if it could get 750 pounds. The sale was made to Joseph Hopkins, who at the same time leased the Stratford Ferry. In 1802, much criticism of the ferries caused a petition for a bridge to be presented to the General Assembly, and in 1804, the first bridge was built. The ferry service was discontinued after serving the public for more than 150 years. Speaking of bridges across the Housatonic, the first one of which we have a record was erected at New Milford in 1737. This bridge was located at the spot where the Bennett Street Bridge now stands. It was carried away in 1802, about the same time that Stratford and Milford were considering their first bridge. When the right to erect the Stratford-Milford Bridge was granted, Derby lost a fight which was generations old. Derby had become a shipping and fishing port and was rapidly becoming a manufacturing town. In 1824, the steamer General Lafayette paddled up the river to Derby from New York. This event caused much excitement. <coughs> the rest of this here is refers to Derby. Then there were four more bridges after that. Oh, that's what I'm looking for now. Mm -hmm. Fishing interests were also opposed to the erection of the Stratford-Milford Bridge. Shad sold at fourpence and sixpence each, and the fishermen claimed the traffic on the bridge would scare the fish away. Hot debates followed, and the assembly was requested to prevent the bridge at all hazards. But the proponents of the bridge finally won, and in 1802, Jonathan Sturgis and others under the name of the Stratford and Milford Bridge Company was granted permission to erect a bridge at the ferry place. The expense of building and maintaining the bridge was to be defrayed by payments by the users of the bridge of tolls. It was ruled that before the bridge company could retain the income from the tolls, they must reimburse the town of Stratford and Joseph Hopkins, the ferryman, for damages incurred by the discontinuance of the ferry. It was decided that the bridge should have a 32-foot draw span, and no charge was to be made for vessels passing through. The bridge must have piers and fenders to support and protect it, and to aid in warping vessels through. See, uh, many of these vessels, in fact, most of them at that time were sailboats. Right. How they ever managed to get up that river? Imagine warping those through against that current. It must be lighted except when the moon shone. Two oil lamps were maintained for this purpose. In 1806, the first bridge carried away. There was much rejoicing in Derby. The whole town turned out for a general celebration, but the bridge company having changed its name to Washington Bridge Company, bravely set out to rebuild. In 1807, with the aid of a $40,000 lottery, in which some Derby residents won substantial amounts, the bridge was rebuilt and opened to the public in 1813. The General Assembly voted at this time that no other bridge 
should be built within six miles of the Washington Bridge. Now figure that one out, Ed. What date was that? No, no other bridge could be built within six miles of the Washington Bridge. Well, it was, uh, well, it was obvious that they wouldn't build one across the mouth of the river down here. Yeah, but look what we've got now. We've, we've got the... The railroad bridge and... We've got the, the railroad yeah. bridge and, and the turnpike bridge. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened was this. David Lacey, a shoemaker, was the builder of the second Washington Bridge. That doesn't sound so good. <laughs> shoemaker, was he? Yeah. Is that the one that went out? The one that no, was built the by the shoemaker? No, it was his next one, I think. Huh? About 1800, he purchased a big house on the Milford approach to the bridge. This house later became known as the Riverside Hotel. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. <clears throat> it was torn down in 1920. Mr. Lacey became owner of a substantial share of the bridge company and managed the bridge for 60 years. This bridge was wider than some of the succeeding bridges. It was located south of the present bridge. Down this way, you, you remember those old... Uh, Is that uh, where the trolley went across? Is the that the one you're talking there? about now? Yeah. Oh, I remember that very well. It was a slow bridge to operate. The master of one vessel became incensed by the delay, fired upon the bridge with a cannon and damaged the woodwork. There were several instances of trouble, and after some court procedure, the trouble ceased.